Thank you, Matt. Really fear the Lord and serve him with your whole heart. That was part of the message we've been considering in the book of Ecclesiastes. And I want to invite you to go with me back to Ecclesiastes, particularly chapter 3 this morning. Ecclesiastes 3. While you're turning, I will ask you to kind of think back over last week and just kind of label it in your mind uh, with maybe a few adjectives, a couple words to go. My week was, I don't know what that would be for you. Uh, actually, was trying to process a little bit of that myself this morning and was talking to Melinda. And I'm like, I think if I were to use three words, I would use this word and this word. And maybe I'm just weird doing something like that, but uh, there was a lot of diversity in it. And it's just trying to figure out how do you summarize it. And so I was just like, well, we'll use that word and that word and that word. Uh, so I wonder what it would be like for you. Maybe you're glad that we're not taking answers. Maybe you'd be glad to go, actually, let me tell you about it. It was great. Um, I don't know what your words would be. Maybe along the same lines, I'd ask you to think, like, we're in November, which is a little hard for me to realize that 2022 is nearing the end. Um, we're in November. I-, I wonder how this year has gone for you. Like, what adjectives would you use to describe the year if you had to pick? It's probably not real fair to give you, like, 10 seconds and come up with the right words in those 10 seconds. It probably takes some time. Um, But my guess would be that there are points of 2022, perhaps points of the last week, that really went well. I mean, it was great. It was wonderful. And yet I would also guess that last week, probably for sure and through the year, there are parts that went a little differently than you had planned. And maybe you rolled with the punches and it was okay. That's the right word. It was okay. It was all right. And then maybe there were parts that were like, it was bad. It was challenging. It was undesirable. Um, It's been a while ago. We did a book of the month through the bookstore several years ago that uh, is titled Off Script. It's a good read. I encourage you to pick it up and take a read through it. But it just reminds us that when we plan our week or we plan a year or really we think ahead to life, it rarely goes exactly according to script, exactly according to plan, to go, hey, I'm at this point in life, and I, I saw myself being exactly right here. It's, it's everything I thought it would be to a T, nothing different. You know, along the way, as we go through life, there are parts of that, those changes, that kind of off-script deviation that are wonderful, where uh, maybe it's a promotion or opportunity that came along at work, and you're like, I never saw this, but this is wonderful. This is great. Maybe on the other hand, there was that job loss, and it was like, whoa, I was blindsided. I, I, I thought things were going well. Um, maybe it's that medical diagnosis that seems to happen far too often where someone's life is radically adjusted because of a trip to the doctor. You know, I, I think of it just in normal life things, like expectation. Like, we've talked about this before, but so often in life, people think, I just can't wait to. I just can't wait to be in junior high, out of elementary. I can have a little bit of freedom, get to go to different classes. I, I can't just, I can't wait till I'm in high school. I mean, I can't wait till I can get my driver's license. Like, that's a big one, right? 
I can't wait till I graduate. Like, when I'm done with high school, maybe I'll do college, maybe not, but I just can't wait till I'm 18, or I can't wait till I'm 21. I can't wait till I'm an adult. And then you get there in expectations. Some of that's good. Some of that's a little different. You know, someday I want to be married. I won't ask because I don't want to get anybody in trouble, but I wonder if marriage has been exactly what you expected. My guess would be there are parts where you're like, it's been wonderful. At least I hope that's the case. And then there are parts you're like, that part has been harder than I thought. What about being a parent? If God has uh, entrusted you with that responsibility, there are parts where you go, yep, I mean, it is true that for many of us, we're like, you know, I know what it's like to be a parent until I have kids, and then I'm not sure what to do. Right? There's parts where you're like, life is full of all kinds of turns and twists, all kinds of changes, And if we're going to use the text of God's Word or the Word from the text this morning, it is full of different seasons. We've been listening into Solomon in a very intentional, purposeful investigation of life that started back in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 12, and is going to go through chapter 12, verse 7. And so we're still very early on in Solomon's investigation to go, where do you find meaning in life? Where do you find satisfaction in life? And I would remind us that we are listening to, according to 1 Kings chapter 3, the wisest man who has ever and will ever live. God uniquely gifted Solomon with wisdom, and God said, your wisdom will be unprecedented for the rest of time. And so Solomon dives in at the end of chapter 1 and seeks to find pleasure and satisfaction in life by being the smartest guy in the room the smartest guy in the world, the wisest man who ever lived. And his conclusion at the end of chapter 1, trying to live in wisdom, is it's worthless. It's vanity. And it's like, oh, ouch. And then we got into chapter 2, and he kind of throws off wisdom and says, what happens if we just live for pleasure? What happens if we try to live it up? And right out of the gate, he's like, you know what? I'm going to drink wine. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go to drink to try to find pleasure. And he's like, well, you know, I'm, I'm going to go build a bunch of stuff. And it is quite the extensive building list in chapter 2. And then he goes beyond that and says, actually, I'm just going to acquire all kinds of possessions. I've got gold. I've got silver. I've got servants. I've got houses. I've got lands. I've got animals. I've got musicians. He's like, I've tried all this stuff. And yet again, let me just remind you of what he said, because these verses stand out so much to me. He says this in Ecclesiastes 2, verse 9. So I was great and increased more than all that were before me in Jerusalem. My wisdom remained with me. Whatsoever mine eyes desired, I kept not from them. That's quite the statement in buying power from Solomon. Whatever I wanted, I got it. I withheld not my heart from any joy, for my heart rejoiced in all my labor. That was the portion of my labor. Then I looked on the works that my hands had wrought, the labor that I had labored to do, and behold, all was vanity and vexation of spirit. There was no profit under the sun. He comes out of that inquiry of pleasure and just says, you know what, it's actually been 
worthless. And last week as we were together, he kind of points to this very disheartening reality that all of us face. He goes, it doesn't matter if you live as a fool or you live in wisdom, everybody dies. The second half of chapter 2, that's his theme. Everybody dies. And he goes on to say, he goes, you know, look at all the stuff that I've gained. I'm going to leave that to somebody, and who knows if the guy that I leave it to is going to be wise or he's going to be a fool. He's like, I don't know, but I know this. He didn't deserve it because he didn't work for it. I mean, this is like pessimistic Solomon. And yet in verse 24, he turned a corner, didn't he? Whereas God hasn't really been in the text up to verse 24, he says, actually, what I've come to realize is that God has given these things to us, and he wants us to eat, to drink, to enjoy what he has given to us, knowing that that is the means by which we worship him for what he has given us. You see that theme continue on, even in the text today. But as we come to chapter 3 this morning, Solomon begins to look and go, you know, life is just full of these extremes on one end or the other where it is exhilarating, it is wonderful, it is life-giving, it is joyful. And then on the other hand, it is hard, it's painful, it's undesirable, it's unexpected. And we live on that spectrum, sometimes in the middle, sometimes on either end. As we come to chapter 3 this morning, we want to look at these seasons of life that he looks at or uh, points us to, but beyond those seasons of life, what we want to see overarching it all is the sovereignty of God. There's two predominant thoughts for us this morning, the seasons of life and the sovereignty of God. When we come to the seasons of life, we'll just see that they're marked by diversity and complexity and tragedy and difficulty, and yet joy and variety along the way. We could look at it this way as we consider the seasons of life. In essence, it's like he's asking the question, what's with my circumstances? Sometimes it's like this, and sometimes it's like that. Sometimes it's good, sometimes it's not. We do well to realize that seasons in life are a very real thing. And we go through times and go, well, this is different. I mean, I even chuckled to myself this week to think about the fact that, like, I'm out there raking leaves, and it's not often that I get to November. We're in the middle of season change. We're raking leaves. Time change is coming, and I want to wear shorts and a T-shirt because it's 75 degrees outside. It's a little unexpected, is it not? To go, well, praise God. I'll enjoy the weather. Some of you are like, I don't like that weather. It should be 45 outside. Well, good for you, Okay. I'm going to enjoy it. God told me to, right? The seasons of life. We want to make a few general observations over the whole of the seasons of life, and then we are going to run very quickly through them. Like, I suppose we could drill down on each comparison and look at it and try to draw things out of it. I'll leave that to you. I want to make some broad, uh, some broad recognitions of this section of Scripture, then quickly run through what's listed there. First, as we look at the seasons of life, asking the question, what's with my circumstances? Notice the totality of the seasons, starting in verse 1. To everything there is a season, a time to every purpose under the heaven. Solomon speaks very comprehensively here at the outset, saying, 
we're going to address every situation in life or every season. And in that, in that word season, we should just think there are times appointed for all these different things. There's, there's an appointed time for uh, this uh, manner of life. There's a, a different and appointed time here. And we realize that as we continue to age along the way to go, you know, there was a time where I had all this energy and then there's a time where maybe that energy is not as present. It's a different season of life. There's a time where it's like, you know, it's just so busy and full and crazy. I'm not sure how I'm going to fit anything else in. And then there's seasons where God grants you respite and it's different. There's seasons where you're in good health and everything's good and it's fine and we're doing all kinds of stuff. And then there are seasons where you're sick and you're down and you're having to change pace. Solomon starts by noting the totality of the seasons going, everything in life fits within an appointed time. We don't always know the why. We certainly don't always know the how long. When we start to think about the totality of seasons, we go, everything in life is going to have an appointed time. Many of us want to go, so how long is this? Right? Because if you could know how long is God going to have you in that medical trial, you go, all right, we're going to get through this. How long is God going to have you in this situation at work? But God doesn't give us that information as to here's why and here's how long. But we can know this, that everything in life falls into an appointed season. Beyond the totality of seasons, I think it would be prudent just to remind ourselves because of the appointed time, there's also a brevity to those seasons. Some will begin and some will end. And that means there are times where endurance and faith is the right answer. I don't want to be where I'm at. I don't like the way this is. But God, I will trust you. I will cling to you. I will endure in faith, knowing that this is an appointed time and it's appointed season. On the other hand, one that some of us, myself included, can miss is recognizing the brevity of seasons. There's a time not to endure, but to enjoy. Not to spend our time going, well, you know what? I can't wait till, if we could just get to, if, if, and we look ahead. It's that little child mentality that goes, I can't wait to be in seventh grade. I can't wait to be in high school. I can't wait till, I can't wait till, I can't wait till. To go, you know what? What God has put in front of me right now needs to be enjoyed. It will pass. And in the midst of the difficulty, the craziness, the problems that you see to go, God, within the brevity of this season of life, I want to enjoy what you've given. The joys and sorrows both are limited. Because where we'll get to, we're not there yet, is he's going to go because God's in control. He's sovereign. Beyond the totality of seasons and the brevity of seasons, all you have to do is just scan through verses 2 through 8 to realize the diversity or the complexity of seasons. To go, okay, if I could pick and choose, like if I could go through verses 2 through 8 and go, that one I like, and that one I like, and that one I like, I mean, our list might be some different because some of us would go, hey, time to speak, a time to be silent, and we might have personal preferences on those. Okay? But they're very different. As you look through the rhythm of what he lays out, some are favorable and desirable. Others are clearly not. Some of them keep us on our toes, and as we read through the list, some of them kind of knock us off our feet. 
where it's like, okay, I'm trying to be ready. Life comes at you different ways, different seasons, and then there's times like, I never saw that coming, and it just levels you. We're reminded of that, even as reading through the diversity or complexity of the seasons, and it's where our theology becomes incredibly important. How do we process living through all these different things? In fact, I would note it this way. They're so complex and diverse, they're actually kind of hard to outline to speak and share with people on Sunday morning. So let's just walk through them together. First, we're confronted with life and death in verse 2. There's a time to be born and a time to die. You read through that and you begin to realize there's one that we celebrate to go, life, a child, someone's born, It's, it's wonderful, let's celebrate. And then on the other hand, there's one where we're like, let's put that off as long as we can. Let's not think about that. Like Solomon talked about that last week. Like death, no way. I, like, I put that out of my mind. But even there, we're reminded God has not made us for more than just here and now. Because there is a time when we will face death. And yet in between those two extremes, we're given this short lifespan, this uh, just this vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. And we go, so how do I live in the middle? Even along the lines of life and death, verse 2 says there's a time to plant and a time to pluck up that which is planted. A time to seek to establish and see things grow and be productive. And then a time to say, nope, a reset is needed. I think for many of us, maybe we overlook the analogy more than someone in Solomon's day would because most of us aren't in an agriculturally dependent society or lifestyle. We go to the grocery store and we think, you know, that's just where vegetables come from, right? But for Solomon's day to realize, no, there's an ebb and flow that is helpful to sustain life. I mean, for most of us, the closest we get is gardening and to go, you know what? We pulled all that stuff out. The season's done. we'll, We'll think about that again next year. But there are these cycles of life that come where, yes, life, productivity, new planting is being sought. And then there's times where it's like, no, it's over. Death has come. Not only are we confronted with life and death, next in verse 3, we're pointed to what hurts or harms as well as what helps. He says there is a time to kill and a time to heal. And it is interesting. I'll go ahead and note in the text that even within the rhythm here, there are times where Solomon's like, let's tell you about the positive first and then the negative. And then in the very next verse, where we are now, he's like, now let me give you the negative first and the positive, right? You ever had someone come and ask you, so do you want the good news first or the bad news? I'm the guy who's like, I don't care, just tell me, right? Maybe you like strongly have a preference there. I just want to know the facts so we can deal with them, right? Solomon is walking through the way life works. Like, we don't get to choose, is Monday going to be the good day of the week or the bad day of the week, right? Monday's just going to come. And having come telling us there is life, there is death, he now reminds us that there is a time where killing is needed. Commentators point to issues like capital punishment or war that takes place. This is a reality in a sin-cursed world, even commanded by God at points. But then certainly we rejoice that there is also a time to heal, to say, I want to see things restored and and built up and helped. Similarly, in the last half of the couplet here, a time to break down and a time to build up. Won't for sake of time go there, but if you look in Jeremiah 18 and verses 7 and verse 9, God is telling his people, you're going into captivity. 
it's irrevocable. It's going to happen. You will end up in captivity. And he talks about the fact that he's going to tear them down. But he's going to build them up again. That is the ebb and flow of life. There's times where it's like, you know what? We have to reset. We have to recognize the difficulty of what has taken place. There's a time for life and death. There's a time for harm and help. There's a time, third, and coming to verse four, for sadness and a time to joy. You notice there at the beginning of each couplet in verse four, it's like there's weeping, there's mourning, but there's also laughter and dancing. And we would do well to realize that God appoints in his wisdom times for both. And both have value. In fact, later Solomon's going to tell us, here's where you should find what is actually better, whether you agree or not. To realize, you know what, God in time says, you know what, this is a time for celebrating, for enjoying, for laughing together. But it doesn't mean that those hard times where we weep, and we mourn are any less important. In fact, there are great lessons Solomon will go on to tell us in walking through those days to go, God, in the midst of this, I want to learn from this time. I want to trust you in this time. I want to be reminded that I live for more than just here and now. But we live in a world that's like, no, we just want you to always be happy. Always. And it doesn't work that way. We're confronted with life and death, with harm and help, with sadness and joy. Fifth or fourth in verse five with destruction and construction, what destroys and what builds. He says, there's a time to cast away stones and a time to gather together. This idea of a time to cast away stones, we can picture in our mind, you know what, I'm going to deconstruct what's been built. But many also point to the idea of actually seeking to harm an enemy. You can go to 2 Kings chapter 3, verse 19, verse 25 as an example to go, you know what, this enemy's been defeated and to make sure that they no longer exercise influence, we're going to scatter stones through all their fields so that that field is unable to be productive again. Or on the other hand, no, let's gather stones around our field to stack them up to begin to build a wall to protect this area that we need for productivity for ourselves. It kind of touches the idea at the end of the verse 5 where there's a sense of affection and separation. You know, there's actually a time where we embrace, and then there's a time where it's like, no, not now. I mean, even practically from a New Testament perspective, we, not too long ago, were finishing out the book of 2 John. And to realize there's a time where someone comes to you, uh, and, you know, it's like, hey, we're, we're Christians, we're all the same. And it's like, well, actually, you don't believe the same as I do about Jesus Christ. I can't wish God's blessing on you. I, I can't want to see all go well. And that's Bible. That's, that's not personal opinion of me. That's Bible in 2 John. And we could go from 2 John to go, well, what about 1 Corinthians 5 or Romans chapter 16 or 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 to realize there are times where separation, where this distance is needed. There's a time to embrace. There's a time to refrain from embracing. A time for affection and a time for separation. Verse 6, there's gain and loss. There's a time to get, a time to lose, a time to keep, a time to cast away. You know what? There are points where you recognize I have to cut my losses to go, it, this just doesn't work anymore. Perhaps many know what it's like to hang on to something for too long, a, a possession, a, 
Maybe it's a stock. I don't know. And go, you know, I just want to see this work. I'm just hoping that we can fix this, that this will adjust instead of going, you know what? It's a time to let go. Then there's a time to go, actually, no, look, there's a time to acquire, to protect, to keep. There's a time to give and a time to gain. Seventh, there's a time to mourn and a time to mend. There's a time to rend. Speaking of, again, that practice of mourning where uh, garments would be ripped to go, I'm in deep distress about what's taking place. I'm, I'm mourning, but also a time to go, and actually now there's a time to repair. There's a time, as we've already alluded to, for silence and speech in verse 7. Verse 8, there's a time to love and a time to hate, illustrated by the second half of the verse in both war and peace time to go, you know what, I stand against this, I, I detest this, I can't live for this, and a time to go, actually, I love, and I want to see this grown and fostered and be whole and right. We walk through them quickly, but I, I hope you're just reminded of the variety, the complexity, the diversity of all these different seasons of life. I would say practically, this is my opinion, you can chuck it if you want, That we live in a culture because of the change that happens, the busyness that's there, where it seems like these seasons come ever so quickly today. It's like, oh, great, it's horrible, it's it's good, it was really bad. And people are struggling in the middle. And that diversity of seasons of life, it's all the more important that we come to this second thought in verse 9 through verse 15. In fact, it's applied more in verses 16 to 22, but we're going to leave that for next week ahead. And so we move from the seasons of life to, secondly, the sovereignty of God. If we ask the question in the diversity of seasons, what's with my circumstances? Like, okay, I should speak, I shouldn't speak, I should love, I should hate, I should embrace, I should refrain, I should uh, tear down, I should build. When we come to the sovereignty of God, we're just reminded who's in control? Who's in control? There's a mix in verses 9 through 16 as Solomon continues to sort through this of both pessimism and optimism. It depends on whether he's looking at things horizontally or theologically. We come to verse 9. We'll say it this way in looking at the sovereignty of God. Man's work lacks abundant profit. So if we compare the two of what God does versus what we do, when we look at what we do, if we, we, if we only look at it horizontally, we're like, man's work is still relatively worthless. It lacks abundant profit. As we consider this idea that man's work lacks an abundant profit, notice first it's raised by a familiar question, beginning of verse 9. What profit hath he that worketh that wherein he laboreth? It's the same question that was asked back in chapter 1, verse 3. What is the lasting abundance? This word profit, again, used nine times in the Old Testament. All of them are in the book of Ecclesiastes. To go, where is there an abundance that lasts, that is just there, that comes from man's work? It's not disappearing. It's not deteriorating. It is there. And the answer that Solomon keeps coming back to is, there's not. There is no lasting, abundant profit to man's work alone. So this idea of man's work lacks abundant profit is raised by a familiar question, but secondly, it's experienced in a repeated observation. It's experienced in a repeated observation. Verse 10, I have seen the travail which God hath given to the sons of men to be exercised in it. 
Solomon repeats the theme that he's already told us once before. This was back in chapter 1, verse 13. In essence, he's saying man works diligently. He labors aggressively. But his questions, his profit, his goals reach beyond his ability to answer and achieve them. If man seeks to live in selfish abundance, going, how do I acquire? How do I profit? And he sees that as his goal, he's thwarted by a sovereign authority. Again, you can think of even Jesus teaching in the Gospels of the man who says, you know what, I'm a, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to tear down my barns. I'm going to build greater so that I can sit back and say, I'm going to take it easy. I'm going to eat, drink, and be merry. I'm going to let it go. It's like, actually, that's foolish. Your soul is required of you. Because when we seek to try to live for profit, for selfish abundance that lasts, God and his sovereign authority stands in the way. Thankfully, when we look at this idea of the sovereign authority of God, though, we have to see that he's good. And that's spelled out, I believe, in what Solomon says next. Looking at the sovereignty of God, we've considered first, man's work lacks abundant profit. Secondly, God's work fulfills his good purpose. God's work fulfills his good purpose in verses 11 through 15. As you get to the beginning of verse 11, notice with me first, his works are beautiful. His works are made beautiful. God is good. We can go to multiple texts of Scripture that remind us that God is good. When we come to Thanksgiving, we're pointed to Psalms that remind us, give thanks to the Lord for He is good. God is truly good. But we're reminded that not only in his character, but also in his conduct, the outcome of everything that he does, God does what is good. We could go back to creation, right? Genesis 1, you get to the end of each day of creation, and what are we told? It's good. It's good. It's good. There's only one thing that wasn't good, right? Genesis 2, it's not good that man should be alone. I'll make a help meet for him. And after that, after the creation of woman, the institution of marriage, God's able to look at all of creation. And what does he say? Genesis 1.31, it is very good. God is good. And all that God does is good. It's complete. It's right. While a different word here is used, I believe the same idea is present to go, what God does, he makes beautiful. He makes it good. He makes it what is needed to be enjoyed. And because of this reality, because God's works are beautiful, according to his good purpose, he's worthy of your trust. He's worthy of your obedience. He's worthy of your reverence or fear. To go, God, there are seasons of life, and I don't see it right now, but you make all things beautiful. And I have no idea how this is going to turn out beautiful. But God, I know what your word says. I believe what your word says. I'm going to trust what your word says. And I'm just going to fear you and obey you. That's my duty. That's my responsibility. Not only are his works beautiful, secondly, his works are incomprehensible kind of ties into the idea that when we look at things, sometimes it's like, well, I don't understand how that could possibly be made beautiful. It's like, you understand, God doesn't work the way you and I work. 
praise God for that. You come to the end of verse 11, he says, also he has set the world in, his, in their hearts so that no man can find out the work that God maketh from the beginning to the end. This word world, again, is a unique word. We hit several of these in Ecclesiastes and translators handle it differently, trying to grapple with this idea that we're kind of uh, created for eternity, made for God, but we're limited here. And so, yes, we're made for there, but we're limited here, and we want to know what's there, but we can't. And so you find translations going both ways to go. He set the world, and he set eternity in their hearts. We are made for eternity. We are created for eternity. We're creating the image of God, but we are bound here, and we don't understand all that God is doing. Part of the uniqueness of being created in God's image. He's put this eternal desire for him in our hearts. We, we've talked about it this way in our study of Ecclesiastes. Just remind you again. These are squirrels. Pick on them again. The squirrels aren't walking around trying to figure out how God caused nuts to grow on the tree. Was it evolution? Was it creation? How can we get more? What if we engineer them genetically? The squirrels aren't real worried about that. We, on the other hand, are a little different. Where? Why? What can I do? How can I improve? And we have this desire to keep uh, handling things better, to understand more, the what's, the why's, the how's. We do that with ourselves. How did we get here? Why are we here? What am I supposed to do? What happens when I die? And humanity, created in the image of God, has this desire to know more so that we can say God has put eternity in our hearts. What matters in the midst of all of this? But we are limited. The end of the verse tells us no man can find out the work that God maketh from the beginning to the end. How do you understand all that God has done? The answer is you and I don't. He doesn't want us to. He, it's that lie from the garden, from the Satan, uh, the serpent in the garden, where it's like, if you just eat of this, you'll be as gods. You'll fully know good and evil. Like, no, we're still created beings. We don't, and we don't want to know. It'd be great if we didn't know what was evil. But now after the fall, we do. The point of the end of verse 11 is no man can find God's works from the beginning to the end. Maybe a better text or parallel text that helps us think about this is those familiar words of Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9, where God says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, and my ways are not your ways. I, I like to think of it this way. God's thoughts are his methods of deciding, and his ways are his methods of doing. So God, both how God thinks about things and how God does things, he executes things, are different than what you and I would do. And then verse 9 tells us, For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my thoughts higher than your thoughts, and my ways higher than your ways. Like, God blows ours out of the water. But we don't always believe that, do we? where it's like, here's the season of life you're in. And you're like, God, I don't, I'm not sure I would do it this way. And we need to be reminded that while we want to know and we want to have some say, God's way is truly better. You're not going to figure it out. He makes all things beautiful in his time. His works are good. They are beautiful, but they are incomprehensible. A text I find helpful for me along these lines Speaking of what God has done in salvation, but I think it applies broadly in this idea as well, is Romans 11, 33 to 36 into chapter 12, starts to ask those questions like, who's known the mind of the Lord? 
Who's been God's counselor? Like, who did God go get advice from? Who's given to God and it'll be recompensed to him again? And he's just reminding us, like, God is way bigger than all of us. He doesn't need advice. He doesn't need counsel. He doesn't need your stuff. He says, for of him, through him, to him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. So what do you do with that? God doesn't need it. So what do you do with that? Like, he, he doesn't need my counsel. He doesn't need my advice. So what am I supposed to do? I'm supposed to present my body, a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God. It's, his, it's my reasonable service. God, I'm just going to live for you. I'm going to trust you. I'm going to obey you. I'm going to serve you because I am bound by time. I go through these seasons, but God, you are not. So I'm going to be submissive and let you be sovereign. Man's work, like if we live for us, it lacks abundant profit. But God's work fulfills his good purpose. His works are beautiful. His works are incomprehensible. Third, his works are enjoyable. We touched this last week, but see it again in the text because Solomon comes back to it. In the midst of these seasons, he says, I know that there is no good in them, but for a man to rejoice, to do good in his life, and also that every man should eat and drink, enjoy the good of all his labor. It is the gift of God. He said it in 2, 24 to 26, and now as he's talked through the seasons, he comes back in chapter 3 and says, here's what I know. God has given me this opportunity to enjoy his gift, not to seek to hoard them, not to live for them, not to value, as we've said, the gift more than the giver. Again, maybe it's a bad illustration that came to mind as I was preparing this week. You ever been to a restaurant? and watch someone, whether it's the bread or the buffet or whatever, but they're trying to find a way to get more of whatever it is. They're wrapping it in napkins, sticking it in their pockets. They're opening their purse and shoving it in. Okay? It's like, how do I get more from this experience? Instead of enjoying the people that I'm with, the meal that I'm given, it's like I got to find more how to take more home. We want to use a biblical illustration, maybe a better illustration. I'll come back to that idea of manna again, where God said, go out and collect each day, and on the sixth day, collect enough for two days. But if they collected more on a day than what they needed for one day, those leftovers weren't any good. But you know, so often we go through life, and it's like, yeah, but I just want to enjoy more, and I want more, and I want more, and I got to find a way. This just And we take God's good gifts and worship them and live for them instead of worshiping him and living for him. We go through all kinds of seasons of life. God's sovereign over those seasons. And he's working to make all things beautiful. You won't get it because his works are incomprehensible. But whatever he does in his wisdom, in his sovereignty, give to you, it is intended to be enjoyed. His works are enjoyable. It's 1 Timothy 6 all over again. We hit this last week, but I'll just remind you again. 1 Timothy 6, 6 to 8 says that godliness with contentment is great gain. For it is certain that we brought nothing into this world and that we'll take nothing out. But instead, when we have food and raiment, we're to be content. Say, God, you've given this to me. Enjoy. It's my portion. It's all good. That's what you've chosen for me 
even if it's different than anybody else. We're looking at God's works, fulfilling his good purpose. We've seen his works are beautiful, incomprehensible, enjoyable, and then finally his works are eternal. His works are eternal. We'll move quickly here because the battery is correct in the clock this week. And we have much to cover, but we'll do it very quickly. When we look at the idea that his works are eternal, first they're permanent in verse 14. I know that whatsoever God doeth, it shall be forever. What God does lasts. We have no profit. We have no lasting abundance. But what God does lasts. His works are eternal. They're permanent. Secondly, God's works are sufficient. Not only do they last, but nothing can be put to it, nor anything taken from it. God's works are complete. There's nothing lacking. There's nothing that you need to add. So if we're going to trust God in the seasons of life to go, he makes all things beautiful. I may not get it, but I know that I'm to enjoy the life that he's given to me. I say, God, I trust your plan. Nothing needs to be added to it. Nothing needs to be taken from it. I'm trusting you with what you've given. His works are good. They're permanent. They're sufficient. And then third, they're reverent. This speaks more to the outcome or what our response should be because we're told that God doeth it that men should fear before him. That which hath been is now, that which, hath been, uh, that which is to be, he hath already been. God requireth that which is past. He's saying God's works are done so that men would fear him. And then when you get to verse 15, we're reminded, you know, what happens in the future, God already knows. What happens in the past, God already had control of. In fact, God has the ability to reach into the past and hold it as though it were the present. The idea of verse 15 is very unique. It paints a picture of things running past, and it's already gone by, but God can go, nope, I'm in control of both. Because God in his eternality lives independent of time and space. We could illustrate it maybe for us to get it this way. You ever had regrets where you're like, I wish I could go back and change? I wish I hadn't said. I wish I hadn't done. You can't go back and do anything about it, can you? You might try to reactively handle things in the future, but you can't go back and change it. You realize God has no regrets? Because he sees what happens, happened a thousand years ago and what happens 5,000 years ahead all at the same time. How do you explain that? It's God. He's eternal. He's not bound by time like we are. And, and so what has already happened in the past he knows what happens in the future. He already knows. God is able to require and control what is still flowing by because he's that big. But don't miss that phrase at the end of verse 14. All that God does in his sovereignty is designed to bring us to fear him so that we would live with a life-orienting reverence of him. When we live with a life-orienting reverence of God in the midst of the seasons of life, it means we're going to believe and trust him. That's great when like, we look at our last week, like, actually, this was a good week. That's not as easy when I'm like, it's brutal. But God wants us to trust and believe him. He also wants us with a life-orienting reverence of him to obey him in those same seasons of life to serve him, to worship him. 
And I've used a lot of the words that we would, but I don't want us to miss this theme that shows up in Ecclesiastes. He doesn't just want us to believe him and trust him and obey him and serve him with this life-orienting reverence. He wants us to enjoy what he's given. Say, God, this is where you have me right now. I'm going to enjoy what you put as my portion. Because in the midst of the seasons of life, with their diversity, their brevity, their complexity, God is sovereign. And when you look at the sovereignty of God, you realize my work lacks abundant profit. It's gone. But God's work fulfills his good purpose. And in God's good purpose, in his work, he makes all things beautiful. How he does so is incomprehensible. But it is meant to be enjoyable. And what he does lasts, it's eternal. It's so uh, lasting that it is permanent, it is sufficient, and our response ought to be one of just reverence to fear him. Let's pray. God, I thank you for this text once more that has challenged and reminded me that we experience so many different circumstances and feelings and seasons of life. And yet in the midst of all of that, we can trust you. We need to trust you because you are sovereign. And in your sovereign providence, your good plan, you do work to make things beautiful. You do deserve to be worshipped and trusted by us. And so, Lord, by your spirit, through the truth of your word, I pray that you would help each of us to live for you this week. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.